Right, thank you uh, very much for coming along to uh, a slightly unusual event here at LSE. Uh, we are discussing the future of rights with uh, my colleagues, Costa Susanus, David Lamy, and Francesca Kloog. Uh, but we're also launching a publishing venture, which is an effort to try and engage in a collaborative in, uh, discussion about the future of rights. And we want to start this evening by just saying a little bit more about that project. So if my colleagues want to just pull your seats back, because we're going to show something, and then we'll start on the manifesto. Welcome to therightsfuture.com. I am Conor Beerty, a professor of human rights law at the London School of Economics in London, or LSE, as is it more commonly known. And this is an experimental web-based project which will be running between now, October 2010, and LSE's Festival of Ideas in February 2011. The subject is rights, more particularly human rights. What are they? Where do they come from? Do they truly exist? Do they have a future? In a moment, you will see, hear, or read my rights manifesto. I have a particular take on rights, and in this manifesto, I set out my beliefs and hopes for human rights, for the right rights future. Then, from this Monday, I will be posting an essay on the web at the start of each week for 20 weeks. Each of these will develop my perspective further and deepen the argument that I am about to set out. But the project is not the usual thing of a writer writing and everybody listening. I want responses to my arguments, extra points, further illustrations, but also disagreements, corrections, and contrary points of view. Every Friday, I will be publishing a response to the reaction that that week's Monday essay has provoked. So the book we will be launching in February will be a composite of all these inputs, a true publishing partnership. The site is open to all whatever your age, wherever you are from, or whatever you do for a living. Please get stuck in, read and watch, and contribute as well if you feel able. But above all, enjoy. Well, there you are, you see. Very soon in this country, the universities are going to be too expensive to go to. <laughs> And those people who go to universities will be people whom you won't want to teach. So in anticipation of the big society, I'm trying to create an opportunity to talk to people who do want to listen. So I am extraordinarily grateful to you all for participating in this, and in particular, grateful to my three colleagues. And. I would be delighted if any of you felt that you wanted to contribute by way of responses to the tracks, as I'm calling them, as they emerge. And what I'm now going to set out in 10 or so minutes, uh, or possibly less, is my manifesto. And there are 10 points I want to make, and I'm going to be writing about each of them. My first point is here. Human rights are social democratic politics 
for our post-political age. For a long time, I was hostile to human rights because I thought they got in the way of social justice, indeed of socialism. I believed that politics, through arguments rooted in the socialist perspective and in social justice, was the way in which to achieve a society in which everybody enjoyed equality of esteem. I believe that is now, in the current situation we're in, an almost impossible dream for the present. I think, properly understood, human rights are the way in which to reinvigorate the political vision we thought of as a social democratic vision in a culture which has become alienated from politics and alienated from the values that underpinned the social democratic vision of Western society that did so much to give us here the life opportunities we have enjoyed. And that's going to be my first track. Human rights need to be true, even if we have to make them so. I have quite a number of tracks on that. If you're being technical and to prove I've planned it, the 11th, 12th and 10th, for some reason, in that order. Uh, I don't believe we can survive as a human rights movement without addressing questions of foundations. I've thought that for a long time. And I think we need to say more than that respect for others is a social or a legal fact. And quite a number of the tracks will be concerned with developing this idea that we either establish truth or, in a slightly subtler point, happily make up truth and reject the old idea that to expose falsity is to prove cleverness. Sometimes maybe the modern insight or postmodern or post-postmodern insight is that we should embrace falsity for fear of where truth leads us. So human rights need to be true even if we have to make them so. Realizing human rights must always be emancipatory and securing them might sometimes be revolutionary. I want to rescue from the margins of history the connection between human rights and violence. I think we need to acknowledge that sometimes the way to achieve change is to frame opinion. And in certain situations that can involve action on the streets, civil disobedience, and in extremists, as was the case in past human rights eras, violence. We should not be afraid of talking about the morality of lawlessness. Human rights must always seek to empower the powerless, to emancipate the weak, or it's not a subject worth engaging in. Labour rights are essential to human rights, another marooned and marginalised aspect of our contemporary culture. I have a track, which is the fourth one, which is called Up With The Unions. Why should the public sector be so embarrassed that it has associations and can defend itself when it's now regarded as completely normal in the private sector to exploit workers without fear of retaliation? We need to refuse to accept the orthodoxies of global capitalism and manoeuvre ourselves into corners where it's regarded as eccentric to be able to engage in collective negotiation about wages because wages are a route to a better life. So let's not be afraid of the unions. 
This is a dangerous one. The great religions are more friend than foe to human rights. My son attended a protest meeting on the visit of the Pope because all his friends in school uh, were so excited by the Pope's visit in a negative way they protested, even though he's a good Catholic. And he, I sent him, I sent him a text message. I said, remember, it's prayer, not protest. But he came back and he told me he'd done his best because he had, in fact, tripped Richard Dawkins. <laughs> he hadn't done it purposefully, but he had hailed Mr. Dawkins on his way to a protest meeting, and Mr. Dawkins had stumbled. So the trip is a slight exaggeration. So <laughs> I think we need to stop viewing people who critique contemporary materialism as enemies. We should focus on what they bring uh, and, and obsess less about those aspects of their engagements of which we disapprove. The critiques of capitalism which are coming out of major religious faiths in the right enlightened hands across the faiths are powerful. Certain forms of religion are shocking, it's true, but certain aspects are tremendous and we haven't got enough cultural resources available to say no to them because we disapprove of this or that policy or this or that record. In taming counterterrorism law, human rights has the chance to renew its soul. I've spent a lot of time in my life thinking and writing about counterterrorism, and I think that human rights needs a good fight, and it's a fight actually in which it seems to some extent to be winning. It's a fight which asserts that counterterrorism is not a formula which maneuvers you into a defensive position from which there is no escape. We need to go on the offensive, and we need to stop being embarrassed and anxious about positions which just a decade or two ago were common sense. It's a staggering fact that the British state coped with IRA violence without extending detention beyond seven days. I remember fighting against seven-day detention, which was regarded as shocking. I even remember fighting against four-day detention, which was regarded as obscene. For those of you who remember the Police and Criminal Evidence Bill of 1983. Why should I now say that 14 days is somehow sensible, or 28? We need to stop being manoeuvred into, in, into positions by power. Human rights can build its energies off the back of a critique of terrorism. Rights are for more than humans. I think we need not to run away from the breadth of our subject. And if that includes addressing other species, levels of cruelty, but also deprivation of chances on the part of those other species, we shouldn't be afraid of it. I've even got a track following from a great article by an appropriately named man called Professor Stone called Should Trees Have Rights? We need to think imaginatively about what progressive language can do for the challenges of the present and put other people on the back foot, to use a cricket analogy. The powerful should be made to need human rights, but they should never like them. It's very worrying to me when a corporation finds it valuable to have human rights. I like them to find it necessary to have human rights. The truth of the matter is, big corporations are like governments. They have coalitions of interests, and many, many people in big corporations are absolutely idealistic and positive in their commitment to human rights. But corporations are tyrannized by economic necessity. And we need to empower those within corporations who are at odds with the economic mission that dominates that corporation. And we must make it 
inevitable that corporations engage in human rights as a defensive act for fear of what will happen if they don't. But we must never allow them to embrace it fully or we will know that we have destroyed our subject. It must be at odds with capital. But that is not to say that corporations cannot do wonderful work by embracing human rights. Wonderful work. And some big corporations do. I think more and more we need to bite the bullet of self-determination. We need to say there is an important story out there called the rights of peoples, but it is not our story. It snuck into the International Covenants in 1966 as a result of a sense of it hadn't been missing in the 1948 period and the Universal Declaration and the Charter and so on. But it's a different story. It's an important story, but I think our subject risks incoherence if we allow it to embrace everything. And finally, lawyers are wonderful for human rights, but as supporting actors, not the main act. Partly because we've never embedded human rights in politics, we have seen it grow as a legal subject. And we need to acknowledge the virtues and power of that, but recognize also the pitfalls. And there are a number of tracks, there are four of them on that. One of them is called Resisting Law's Empire. Uh, another is called Save the Human Rights Act. I'm a big fan of the Human Rights Act in Britain because it connects politics to law, connects human rights to the political sphere. So these are my 10 manifesto pledges, like the Conservative Party's pledges. Uh, they will definitely happen. Aww. This is my program for government. And these 10 produce these 20 tracks, which will be out on a Monday. It will stand or fall by interaction. And what I'm hoping is that people reading them and seeing me introduce them will be interested in engaging and challenging, etc. And it's in that spirit that I'm thrilled to have the three first choices to share this event with me along tonight, uh, my good friends and colleagues in the field, and uh, I would like, first of all, to ask Professor Costas Dismas to add his ten or so minutes. I don't know if he needs much introduction, other than to say that he is a fantastic advocate of human rights and ambiguously committed to them in the same way as myself. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. What a wonderful uh, initiative. When Kono mentioned uh, this idea to me about uh, a few months ago, four or five months ago, I was struck by the, the exotic nature of the format. You know, this idea that he would be writing chapters and people would comment and then he'd go back and rewrite them and so on. And I was trying to think about the history of something like that. And I had a couple of ideas, but they were not gelling together. And then this morning, going to work, I passed down this street. And of course, for most of you, Downing Street is the seat of the big brother of Matrix. <laughs> it is the big brother of radical lawyering. But then some of you would also know that uh, Downing Street is the seat of Dickens' house. It is a wonderful museum, the house of Charles Dickens, and then it all came together. 
Conor Gearty is the postmodern Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Charles Dickens Demosur. And what do I mean by that? Those of you who have done your English at A11 and so on, you remember that most of the novels that Dickens wrote, uh, and he was extremely prolific, as you know, were written by means of monthly installments in newspapers. He started in the 1830s, the Pickwick Papers, 20 monthly installments in the Morning Chronicle. And then he had a, an argument with the publisher of the Chronicle. He moved to other publishers. He set up his own publishing house, but that failed. Think about that, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, even published Bleak House, Bleak House of all things, in 26 installments between the March of 1856 and I think the December of uh, 18. So he was very much into this idea of writing by installments. The idea that this novel, a bit like EastEnders today, you know, where you have to create a sense of excitement at the end of its uh, episode so that people are going to go back and have a look at the next. And of course, as we all know, and that applies fully to um, Conrad, Dickens was obsessed with the business of social justice and the iniquities of law. And with this idea of the iniquities of law, that brings to mind the second obvious person that is linked, not necessarily historically, but theoretically, with Conor's enterprise. And that is Ronald Dworkin. Ronald Dworkin has told us that the common law is like a chain novel. It is a novel, it is a joint enterprise between authors, the common law judges, who look back at the precedent or the statute or the constitution or whatever, and they add a new chapter in every case that they decide. And this idea of adding a new chapter uh, is supposed to give, a certain, as a novel, as part of an authorial enterprise, is supposed to give a certain coherence to the law, to make law, as he puts it, be the best that it can be, to show society and the legal system in its best possible light. That, of course, does not say very much about the iniquities of law that Charles Dickens and, uh, and Conor Gerty are interested in. And then the third name comes in, and that is Subcommandante Marcus, <laughs> the leader of the Zapatistas in Chiapas. You may have heard that about four years ago he wrote the chain novel with perhaps the best-known crime, Mexican crime novelist, Paico Taito. The, no the, the novel was called uh, Awkward Murders, and in that novel, where the Marcus wrote the first, third, and fifth chapter, the other guy the fourth, second, fourth, and sixth, he presented his coming out of academia, becoming a guerrilla, eventually a guerrilla leader, and the way in which the legal system and political power in Mexico treated him and tried totally to annihilate both himself and his ideas and so on. And I think three, three names, Dickens, Dworkin, Marcus, in a sense, represent it seems to me what is absolutely brilliant about uh, Conor's here, with one perhaps little change or little improvement that Conor is asking people to contribute, to comment, even criticize uh, his uh, chapters, and then he would take those into account. Of course, as Conor knows, both he 
and myself have been writing the Guardian newspaper and got some pretty abusive comments over there, so I don't know what he's going to do if people start abusing him again in his new blog. But of course, Dickens was very much like that. You know that he wrote two alternative endings for great expectation. And the old curiosity shop, which is just around here, you know, he decided to kill uh, Nell only at the very last minute, minute. He didn't know what to do with the little Nell, and eventually he killed the character off. So the question is, will that introduction of the public, of the bloggers, those threads that are going to follow from, um, from the corners, uh, chapters and introductions and so on, how would they respond to the ideas and to what extent they would be, as it were, absorbable within the body of the world? Would they be, in Duokinian terms, a chain novel that shows human rights as a coherent, a coherent discourse and practice that is only the good? Or would they introduce the subcommandante Marcos idea that there is something strange about human rights? And if then I turn just for a minute to his Ten Commandments, because as he said, he is a good Catholic and we always need our commandments in an ecclesiastical setting, I would say that I agree with all of them to the extent that as I go there, I retain the right to, to interpret them in an authoritative manner. <laughs> I agree with every single of the Ten Commandments, but I will interpret them in my own way, in terms of the work that you know, we have been doing for the last 20 years. I start with an axiom, a premise, that for me is absolutely central in any attempt to understand what is happening to human rights in today's world. The purpose, the end, the function of human rights is to resist public and private domination and oppression. When they lose that end, and they lose, them, they lose that end when they become the political ideology of neoliberal capitalism or the latest version of the civilizing mission, when they lose that end, that purpose, that function, then their usefulness comes to an end. That is a premise. I say it's an axiomatic premise. You take it or you leave it. That's what I believe in, and uh, I, I'm working uh, all my life, both as an academic and as a campaigner, precisely uh, upon that premise. Then three very brief commandments, which I think, to a certain extent, condense the ten commandments that uh, Connor put on the on the screen. The first is this. The idea of humanity, of a universalism, of a universal equality that permeates the, um, uh, the whole practice and discourse of rights, has always been followed by a history in which humanity, the idea of humanity, has been used in order to distinguish, to separate between the fully human, the less human, and the inhuman. The barbarians to the Greeks, the heathen to the Christians, the foreigners to the citizens in early modernity, the uncivilized to the colonials today, the precarious, the precarious huge number of people in the world as against the world of the seduced, who are very happy now to discuss human rights, particularly privacy and free speech, because these are the kinds of things that those of us who are well off, who are in a good situation, of course, value very. Uh, very much. That was the first uh, principle. The second principle, in a sense, the follow is this. Humanity and sovereignty. 
the universal and power. Indeed, liberty and security, rather than being some kind of great opponent, great enemies, involved in a zero-sum game, but when we get more liberty, we have less security, or vice versa. And in reality, in terms of my own kind of theoretical and political analysis, part of an amalgam, you can call it an amalgam of power and morality, sovereignty and rights, and each epoch, each historical epoch and society that we know of, displays, brings together a particular configuration of this amalgam of a particular type of power, a type of organization of sovereignty, and a certain morality, rights today, and, and so on. So it is highly problematic to get into that rhetorical game of freedom against security. And if I were to say one word in relation to our debate today, to the extent that the principle promoted by all the major positions within the liberal discourse of contemporary Britain is that of freedom of choice. We are free to choose. And of course, we are free to choose in that sense to be happy, to be the one, to be me, to be the center of the world. There is a duty on the state to provide the necessary means for this happiness, for this, uh, for this health and fitness and well-being to, be, to become uh, realized. If that happens, and for that to happen, you need necessarily to control, to discipline, to organize both the social and the individual body. To that extent, all these measures that people have been condemning about surveillance, about CCTV cameras, about all these kinds of increased security measures are not the antithesis of freedom. They are precisely part of the way in which what I call the amalgam of power and morality is organized today. Freedom and security always go together. And they take different forms in each particular period. And the very final point I want to make is this. Human rights do not belong to humans. They construct humans. Depending on what type of rights, on what type of expectations and legal provisions a society uh, recognizes and forces and promotes, we have different kind of people, different kind of subjects who work out in the world. And if we turn for a minute to our Human Rights Act and the big debate about the Act, I would say this. Because as we know, the debate is, do we need the Human Rights Act or should we get a British Bill of Rights? The people who today and in the next few weeks and months and years need some kind of legal remedy and protection, those people are going to be losing their uh, welfare benefits, their child benefits, their housing benefits. Those people have absolutely no remedy under the Human Rights Act, and they would not get any remedy under the British Bill of Rights. Because while the Human Rights Act protects the right to property, and the very first case that involved the declaration of incompatibility was about the rights of a pawnbroker, no single mother in Tottenham who is losing her child benefit, no family that is losing the household benefit will have any kind of remedy under the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on Human Rights in relation to this thing. Because as you know, no social, economic, or cultural rights are included in it. To that extent, while I think it is important to keep in mind that interest intention 
that uh, his ten commandments, Paul's ten commandments, put forward the tension between that idea of universalism, of spiritual uh, equality of humankind, of people here. On the other hand, without that political sting, without that political battle to try and create areas of protection and promotion of the interests of the disenfranchised in our society, human rights on their own are not going to do it. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Costas. Uh, Francesca Cloak is Professorial Research Fellow here at LSE, Director of Human Rights Futures Project. I've worked with uh, Francesca for a very long time. Uh, I wouldn't be at LSE without Francesca, and it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome her here and to thank her for all the support she's given me on this subject over many years and to give her the floor. She was muttering, not true, not true, during part of Professor Dusen's <laughs> comments, so uh, she will now have an opportunity to uh, react to that and indeed to the future of human rights. Francesca. Now, Costas and I will have a nice debate in the pub afterwards. Um, but I want to start by congratulating you, Charles, I mean Connor, uh, on this remarkable uh, initiative, this e-book in the making. Um, and I want to congratulate you for three reasons. First of all, I think it's in tune with the zeitgeist, isn't it? I mean, as you alluded to, this is all the making of a big society project. <laughs> it has opportunities to vote on propositions, write your own chapters, involve schools. And second, I want to congratulate you on fulfilling one of your ambitions, because I know that throughout your life you've always quite fancied doing a Marx versus Engels and having your own manifesto and finally <laughs> you've achieved it but the, the ingenuity of this project I'd like to tell you in the audience is actually very characteristic of the, of the author whether you call him Charles or Connor because over the years he's always pushed rather than nudged all of us to challenge orthodoxies and scale new heights I've known Connor for more than 20 years and we've been close colleagues for most of that time. And I can tell you that his sheer passion, commitment and genius has been a huge and inspira inspirational influence on me and my work, but much more importantly than that, on the many students who've passed through his doors. And third, I want to congratulate you on the timing, because this launch coincides almost exactly to the day with the introduction of the Human Rights Act 10 years ago. And it's a fitting anniversary present in my view because it asks us to reflect on what human rights are and where they're traveling to. Now, if we think back over the last decade, it's quite extraordinary what changes there have been. I mean, Connor, your hair was, um, how can I put it, <laughs> slightly darker than it is now. I didn't wear glasses iPads were what you wore on the aeroplane when you wanted to get some sleep. <laughs> E's were more associated with hallucinogenic substances than books. And conjure this, 9-11 was still just two random numbers. And in this country, human rights were frequently still portrayed in the post imperial idiom of something foreigners apparently lacked, particularly non-Western ones, scant relevance to us here in the land of Magna Carta, Magna Carta, except as a British export. 
But now, since the Human Rights Act, it's hard to open a newspaper, isn't it, or listen to a debate or be involved in any kind of political struggle or discourse without human rights entering it. With such prominence has come a backlash, of course, so that it's become almost impossible to distinguish myth from reality, for example, the myth that there's never been a case under the Human Rights Act involving the withdrawal of benefits. Um, that was a little dig, Costas. Um, opinion from fact, vested interest from moral outrage. But even without such noises off as I see it, how you understand human rights and their future depends on which lens you look at human rights through, poetry or prose. In prose form, human rights are standards laid out in international treaties and domestic law which can only be adjudicated on by judges and fully understood by lawyers, and not always then. In the UK, the black letter law tradition, human rights, which is the ultimate in value-laden law, can even be given a technical positivist slant by lawyers, leading to all sorts of misunderstandings about what human rights law apparently does and doesn't empower public officials to do. And now, you've heard it from me, Christmas is not banned under the Human Rights Act, and nor are wanted posters for escaped convicts, although most of the population now think that's the case. But at the same time, it is the translation of the idea of human rights into law which gives it its bottle. This is the source of any measurable impact of human rights over the last century, those half century and more, both here and the globe. Without the law, the human rights wouldn't have teeth. In the UK, Without human rights law, the courts would not have ruled against indefinite detention without trial or the modern-day slavery of some domestic workers or the starving out of asylum seekers or unnecessary physical restraints on children in young offenders' institutions. In other words, it's the application of human rights law which, as I said, has given human rights teeth. But these same teeth <coughs> threaten to tear the soul out of human rights. And here I'm completely with Costas when in the tradition of Hobbes, Kant and Locke, human rights are presented as an absolute truth above politics, above human engagement, above even human judgment, yet aimed at human emancipation. It doesn't add up. By this approach, rights are no longer validated by God these days, but by an intergalactic court, or so it must seem to the uninitiated, whose legitimacy in modern democracies, which concede such courts, will forever be the subject of dispute. What we face now in Europe, in my view, may test the effectiveness of human rights to the absolute limit. This is a moment, or maybe a decade, of truth about our identity. Will the preoccupations of our post-9-11 economic recession-driven era overwhelm us? Will human rights law in itself resist the mass expulsion of Roma, the outlawing of the burqa, the erosion of the presumption of innocence for whole communities? Or will the other, the outsider, be marginalised and expelled as in the Europe of old? Abdul Kaya Benali, who emigrated to Holland with his family as a child and was once embraced by the society around him, asks in Sunday's Observer, I don't know how many of you read his moving article, so what has changed? His answer, 
as the memory recedes of the events which led to the mass destruction and genocides of World War II, so the emancipating values of equal worth and human dignity, which were given renewed weight in the wake of that catastrophe in Europe, they are giving away to baser and older fears. And this is where the poetry, the passion of human rights, comes in. Through the lens that sees human rights as poetry, as values and ideas that have preceded international law and standards. Through that lens, it's the values that have gone on to shape the law and give them the force that they have, not vice versa. And from this perspective, if human rights are to survive, as Connor asked in his now famous Hamlin lectures, then human rights as aspiration, as vision, as emancipation must not be strangled by human rights as prose, as law, as technicalities. Now, I've no doubt that Connor's virtual book will explore such themes, even in such strangely titled chapters as Double Standards Are Valuable As Long As They Don't Last Too Long and Do Trees Have Human Rights? When I read that the first time, I thought it said, Do Tories Have Human Rights? <laughs> and I wanted to say, yes, of course, trees I'm not so sure. And this... But where I do depart from Connor, somewhat, is his assertion. I think I've just switched off his E thing. I switched it on. Ah, there you are. Human rights or social democratic politics for our post-political age. I want to take issue with the very first clause in the, uh, the Human Rights Manifesto. Now, I agree that human rights have come into their own in an age of failed utopias. Indeed, I'm trying to write a book with that very title, little plug. And I agree that in the post-socialist era, human rights are frequently the means through which people express their ethical vision for society. But I don't agree that human rights idea is simply social democracy masquerading as something I was going to say gentler, but after what Connor was saying about violence, I would say masquerading as something rougher. Although human rights and social democracy are both rooted in notions of fairness and equality, the questions driving social democracy, I would suggest, are fundamentally utilitarian ones about the greatest good for the greatest number. Now, whilst the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights was shaped as much by socialists and social democrats as by liberals and libertarians, it represents two crucial departures with traditional left thought. First, it's important not to underestimate, and I know Connor never does, the influence of non-Western, non-secular thought in post-World War II human rights thinking. Faith-based insights about equality, dignity, and equal worth of every individual are written all over human rights treaties. And the importance of the community, not just of the individual, but of the community in human development. I have to tell you, Connor, that my daughter also wanted to go on that demonstration, but I managed to talk her out of it. And she's not only not a good Catholic, she's a good Jew. <laughs> The second departure, and now let's be honest here, of human rights from social democracy, is that the evolution of human rights thinking was itself partly a reaction to the authoritarianism of communism as well as fascism. In my view, it's a vision for the good society which starts with the individual, not the state. 
and asks what are the conditions necessary for human flourishing, as Amartya Sen put it. The overlap, on the other hand, with social democracy lies in the conclusion that human flourishing must, as Costa so eloquently put it, include freedoms to certain essential social and economic goods and services, as well as freedoms from tyranny and servitude. Mr. Cameron asks us today to all join in together, because we're all in this together, in a debate about what, what we mean by fairness. Well, I would like to say to Mr. Cameron that human rights activists have been discussing that for a very long time. As I see it, the struggle of our time then is to ensure that human rights survives as both poetry and prose. Not easy, I know because the idea of human rights will be drained of vitality if always mediated by lawyers, but it can disappear like shadows if not anchored in law. The hope lies in what we see before our eyes every day, the human struggles throughout the globe that seem inextinguishable, the small acts of resistance and the great acts of courage. This as Costa said, is the spirit of human rights. And in an unjust world, I suspect, sadly, that the future of human rights is therefore secure. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Francesca. I used to run the Centre for the Study of Human Rights here at LSE for a number of years, seven years, and it gave me many abiding images and memories which are very positive ones. And one of the strongest images I have is of our next speaker at my centre going upstairs for a drink you won't get now because I've run out of money. I no longer direct the centre. <laughs> and being surrounded... Stop, stop, stop barracking me, Costas. <laughs> and, uh, and being surrounded by our students. And I am especially pleased to have on the platform tonight a politician. Because I have, as part of my belief, that human rights needs to be less afraid of or superior to politics. And I am so pleased to be able to welcome back to LSE David Lanning. David. A politician with no power. <laughs> Last time I here I had a little bit of power, now I have none. But I'm very pleased to be here at LSE and to try and weave between Conor Costas uh, and Francesca, which is going to be quite difficult, uh, because I agree with bits of all that have been said, but not with all of it. So I, I, I just want to try and give some <laughs> political reflections. The first is to say that this is a very necessary debate, no doubt about it, an absolutely necessary debate, and it has to be a debate that is a 21st century debate, not a 20th century debate. And what I mean by that is just in these first 10 years of this century, we've had 9-11, then the war in Afghanistan, followed by Iraq. We had the bombs, of course, that exploded in London. Uh, the dominant discussion prior to the economic downturn was a discussion effectively about sustainability and climate change. And then, of course, we had the economic downturn. The one ray of sunshine uh, was the election of Barack Obama uh, in the United States. It has been a packed, full, tough first 10 years of the 21st century. And when you look across that landscape, it is obvious 
that the need and desire for human rights is there and the articulation of a fully fleshed human rights uh, is very necessary. However, and there are some big however, however's, um, human rights, and I think Kossos is right, has got to come from somewhere and it has got to come from people. It, it can't be this lofty thing that hangs about up here. I've enjoyed working with Francesca over the years, uh, but one of the problems I think the Human Rights Act in Britain uh, has encountered is this sense of where did it come from. Uh, it is hugely difficult uh, in office when human rights feels like something that has been written by a metropolitan elite, has been written by lawyers, comes from a political place that, that, that certainly I would want to associate myself with and be part of, but doesn't feel like people have fought the battles to get it. And therefore, selling human rights in Britain has become hugely problematic. But I want to cite this debate, certainly in relation to this country, in two um, deep, really political subjects, because I think you, otherwise we had this sort of, and I used to be a lawyer, so I mean, you know, lawyers love this, but you have this sort of slightly sterile, shrill debate about human rights. And I think the two real ideas that matter are liberalism and a growing debate, certainly in this country now that Labour's not in power, about statism or laborism. Now in relation to liberalism, I stand here as a black man. Uh, when my mother arrived in this country uh, in 1970 off a plane in Gatwick, her first experience of being in England was being strip searched. Uh, I grew up at a time when uh, being black in Tottenham meant being routinely stopped by the police, stopped and searched and harassed. And of course, I experienced the catastrophic and terrible riots that we experienced in Tottenham as a result of that period. So I absolutely stand in full solidarity with the major, major battles of the late 20th century that have not been completely won, but have been advanced. That is standing in solidarity with people who are of uh, ethnic background, who have been routinely discriminated against, the major battles for fights for equality for women, the major battles in terms of gay rights, uh, and that whole collection of civil liberties issues that existed in this country. There was another big thing going on that, that we all were animated about and that continued for some time and that was Mrs. Thatcher's uh, and Ronald Reagan's introduction of a very serious neoliberal economy uh, at the same time. So what I'm saying is at the end of the 20th century you see liberalism in different guises both in economy and in terms of social norms changing. And what that introduces, I think, in a powerful way, is the individual, the assertion of the individual into the major dialectic diatribe of the time. Now, 
What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is I stand here as a socialist. Uh, if Connor is right about social democracy, I want us to get back to having debates about the collective whole. I'm sick and tired of an emphasis on the individual. That is driving us in completely the wrong direction. We're not going to solve the challenges that I just set out in the first 10 years of the 21st century with an overemphasis on the individual and the individual's needs. How are we going to deal with climate change? If it's all about my right versus your right? If it's about a neoliberal economic model that really in the end asserts the right of capital? over the right of production. How are we going to deal with the major uh, debates that have come out as a result of um, uh, profound challenges in faith, particularly extreme versions of the Islamic faith, unless we do it collectively? So I, I want to be pretty old-fashioned, but in a 21st century way, and say that this, in the end, is about politics. In the end, it's got to be, to my sense, a social democratic or a socialist vision of what the 21st century is. And I want to say something else. New Labour, which I know is a very, very dirty word in NSE, <laughs> and the New Democrats, as they were in America under Bill Clinton, uh, and in fact, remember that that new started in Australia under Paul Keating was in effect a kind a response to being out of power for many many years in Britain, eighteen years. It was a desire to rebuild public services again. It was, in some senses, a deficit model at a time when most people believed two things: one, that ideology was dead, and two, that um, communism and socialism were these backward, forgotten things. So what I'm trying to say is it what new is a kind of interesting idea if it was responding to an agenda that was largely being set by those on the right uh, out of Chicago, Hayek and others and Reagan and Thatcher and perfected all right. It was a reaction to them. Now is the time for the new of Labour. And actually, human rights is one of those underpinnings, but it is not the only underpinning. Now, let me give you some illustrations of this uh, when I was, when I was uh, in government and what I've seen, just to underline this point. Let's take, um, in my role as Minister for Higher Education. So I'm Minister for Higher Education. I have to try and be impartial. I have to, uh, you know, try and be fair, understand that universities are autonomous institutions, uh, and guess what? The same old argument, the Oxford Union decide they want to invite Nick Griffin to speak. You get the old debate about freedom of speech, and you know all the arguments. I'm sure this hot room knows all of the arguments about should you speak, should you not speak, what is freedom of speech? I just want to say, of course he shouldn't play the speak, but I can't do that really. Not, 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 I can now. <laughs> but actually, why do I want to say he shouldn't speak? Not because of human rights. Of course I believe in free speech. And he's entitled to speak. 
Why I don't want him to speak? Because there's one Afro-Caribbean child at Oxford this year. One. And I'm more interested in equality. I'm more interested in socialist progress. I'm more interested in what that does to those who might apply if Nick Griffin speaks. That's not about human rights. That's about good old-fashioned politics. Just in the run-up to the general election, here's one other illustration. You may have seen those posters in Britain. My right to, uh, this is, the, we were celebrating the NHS and 50 years of the NHS. My right to an appointment. My right to see my doctor in two weeks. My right to sue my doctor. I know they didn't put that on it. <laughs> <laughs> the point is this, the NHS, that great invention, should not be reduced to a collection of actually quite arbitrary rights. It is essentially about obligation. And that gets you to this other profound debate that we must have about statism. It's what happens when liberals start to lose the plot on enforcing and imposing rights on their population and moving, as Costas indicates, way beyond understandings of human rights. So that we in government introduce a new right that pensioners could not live in fuel poverty, but then in office didn't achieve that goal because we ran out of the money to do it. Now this is insane. We cannot impose new rights one after the other. They have social consequences. Uh, I grew up in an age where uh, Esther Ranson led a fierce campaign against uh, child abuse, led to childline. Uh, it led very much to a period now where we assert children's rights in a major, major way. I think many of us who thought that that was a good thing would not have imagined the bureaucracy that the state would drown you in if you want to take a group of young children on a trip and the CRB checks that must flow from that. That is an abuse of rights. And I heard her on television, she was, she was challenged, and, and she said, if one child saved, it's worth it. No, it's not. Not if a hundred in Tottenham could not go to the seaside because the teachers could not pass the CRB checks in time, or the church group couldn't, or the rest of it. So we do need this profound discussion on rights at this beginning of the 21st century. But let us determine what human rights are and what they aren't. Let us not be lazy on the left. We have to be a lot better and more articulate than our colleagues on the right who will always, in the end, reduce any debate to selfishness, me, myself, and I. We have to be wary and concerned about the overemphasis on the individual. We have to assert obligation and responsibility. And in these tough economic times, we have to remember that there actually is an opportunity to take rights from this lofty legal thing that I learned down the road at SOAS and across the ways at Harvard to something that is felt and is very human. People in this country are going to suffer hugely post-October post the 20th. You know, let us be absolutely clear. Some of the changes to our benefit system could lead to serious civil unrest, I believe, in this country.
They need a rights that is coming really from them, but articulated by people who stand in solidarity alongside them. So this is a pertinent debate, but it's one that will need quite a lot of refining if it's certainly to take my constituents uh, uh, with you. Thanks. Quite, quite, thank you, David. Quite a lot of refining it will get. That's the point of it. And already the refinements have begun. Now we have a few minutes before uh, we close up. And I would very much appreciate some interventions from the floor. Uh, we have a hand up already. We have another hand up. That's excellent. Uh, we have uh, microphones. And I'd like you to say who you are, if you feel you can, and also what you are, a student or member of the public or whatever. And then it can be a question, it can be an observation, uh, whatever. I'll take a couple and then I might catch another eye. I've caught another eye over here. And so we'll take those three and then we'll briefly deal with them. Uh, sir. Uh, yeah, I'm Bernard Keenan. I'm a former student of Connors and I actually work in Tottenham um, at Wilson Solicitors, so I'm familiar with a lot of the stuff you've mentioned. Um, Connor, I, th I mean, the first thing, uh, after hearing your... 10 points on the manifesto. I was sort of thinking back to when I was in your class a few years ago, and it seems you've changed your position quite radically. <laughs> and choose the word radically because, you know, I remember bringing up the question of violence and being very quickly sort of um, shot down by you, you I think, at one point. Um, but uh, maybe, uh, maybe that was only in a legal context. But, um, and also economic rights. And I'm just wondering why that is and what has led to that change. Um, but just more generally, I think that the. Um, What's come up again and again is this need to uh, have human rights anchored in some sort of political reality. Um, and, and I think that's what's going to force the issue and, and maybe make human rights um, more of a sort of democratic thing than perhaps they've become in the last 10 years. And um, on that subject, I just, I'm, I'm also curious, I suppose I'll read about this, but how you're going to work the great religions into that because I think they've always been reactionary and I think they're structurally reactionary. I want to make sure you're finished, Bernard. I want you to say in a year's time that I shouted you down. So <laughs> we want to just clarify the concluding point. Excellent. Now, that's the kind of way I handle people in class. I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, there's another gentleman up here, and then there's a person here. We'll take the three. My name is Gunnar Beck. I uh, teach EU law at SOAS, and EU law is a bit like human rights now. It's inescapable even in a place that's devoted to the laws of other um, continents. Now, um, I've got two questions. Uh, I've got a, common, uh, a comment, really. Um, someone once spoke about uh, uh, or wrote about two concepts of liberty. It seems that uh, much of what was said uh, today seems to distinguish, in a sense, impliedly, between two uh, conceptions of rights. One is where right is used almost as a synonym for value. So it would uh, 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 include uh, claims that are more traditionally associated with the notion of equality, uh, um, satisfying basic needs, and the like. So rights that would incorporate a profound uh, social democratic or socialist uh, dimension. 
so here, right is really a synonym almost for value, and I think it's been linked very helpfully to the idea of uh, human uh, flourishing. So it's the presuppositions for a good life and clear, clearly material well-being is part of it. So it's a bit unclear what the term right adds here. Uh, it could add rhetorical force. Uh, that's about it, I fear. And then secondly, there's a conception of rights uh, which is the um, more legally common one where rights are enforceable uh, in the courts. Uh, there the problem is that traditionally human rights charters favor what are called negative or civil rights and they uh, uh, don't accord the same status uh, 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 to uh, social and economic rights. Uh, there's another problem associated with that notion, namely that even if judges are called upon to interpret rights in a more uh, uh, economically egalitarian fashion, what usually happens is that they don't and that they are progressive only when such rights come cheap. I would argue somewhat provocatively that is perhaps by the judiciary is rather liberal when it comes to sexual matters. It usually doesn't cost very much to be progressive here. Uh, so rights, the judiciary favors rights amongst other things when they come cheap. Now, um, there is of course a reason why the judiciary thinks like that because they don't uh, like to get engulfed in political controversies. If one is too generous here, there's a problem too uh, how would one satisfy every possible claimant? So given that there are objective constraints on the enforceability of social and economic rights, just as there are objective constraints on the enforceability of such political claims, well, what is the alternative view to rights? Is it just rights as values as a rhetorical device to add something when those claims appear to have become um, less fashionable. Well, I, I think I'll, I'll stop there because I think <laughs> that's something I might be asking some of our colleagues to deal with as well. That, that is an observation. And we had our, thank you very much, and third, and then the panel, and then another round. Hi, my name's Dan Layton. I uh, work at the think tank Demos. Um, in your presentation, Connor, and in some of the responses, there was a sort of suggestion that uh, democracy and human rights are, some, are, in a sense, sort of a synonym for each, a synonym for each other or are directly analogous. Um, at the same time, you said that human rights advocates should stay away from the right to self-determination. Um, do the panelists generally, and you in particular, see that as being a tension between the particularism of democracy rooted in a particular community and the universalism of human rights? Um, there's a claim, I mean, one of the, I suppose the most effective claim to sort of reconcile them in my mind comes from someone like Habermas, who says they're coeval with each other. I'm not sure that necessarily gets at the problem that there is a, there is a fundamental tension between the two. Um, and either you take a sort of Dworkian perspective and say, well, rights trump because they just do, um, or you somehow have to go at the tension at the heart of that and wrestle with that. And I don't think it's that recognised in those clauses there. Yeah, right. Thanks, Sam. I'll... I'll directly deal with you and or answer you, not deal with you. And then I go to the panel and I'll finish off with with Bernard with whom I will deal. 
uh, I think what was interesting about reading about people who believed in democracy in the 19th century, they really believed that it would solve the problems of justice. And there was a kind of naivety, which is admirable, but which is impossible today. And then when you read about self-determination of peoples, there is a similar sense that the achievement of nationhood will bring the solutions. And therefore you see in the first article of the two of the International Covenants in 66 a commitment to the right to self-determination. And a sense of that being a project which is worthy in itself and productive of solutions. And that is also untenable today. And I think what has happened has been that human rights has re-emerged because of our understanding that democracy does not guarantee the equality of esteem that we believed it would guarantee, and that freedom for previously colonized units does not bring the same level of respect for human rights as might have been believed would be the case. The tension is there, unavoidably so, which is why I think something like the Human Rights Act works, because it does not seek to contradict the democratic will with a judge's view of what human rights is, but rather provides an input into the culture's understanding of human rights, which hopefully affects the culture in a way which makes less likely the attacks on human rights that that culture might engage in. Now, I think our society is changing, and I think our commitment to human rights, which is 10 years ago this week, as Francesca reminds us, is from another era. And I think these efforts to throw down controls on our behaviour from the past are becoming less and less successful. Look at President Sarkozy of France, who feels able explicitly to reject law which guarantees the rights of the Roma people. We could be at a point where majoritarianism, born of despair, born of the lack of respect we show ourselves, turns into anger at the other. Uh, I don't think judges can stop that. I think our culture needs to be revived in a way which makes it impossible. Uh, I, I wonder whether you might want to comment, Costas, perhaps, on the second question. Uh, and indeed, David and Francesca, and anything you've heard briefly, and then I'll, I'll, I'll respond to Bernard, and then we'll go for another round. We're here, we're here till about five to eight, so we should get another round or possibly two in. On the second question, I wanted to say a few things about the point you made quite rightly, uh, about the way in which uh, there is what people call an inflation of rights discourse around. And... Um, I think some of the examples that David gave about some types of children's rights. I mean, actually, one of the ministers of his government uh, wrote about a couple of years ago that we all have a right to properly function in kitchen gadgets, that this is a great <laughs> human right. And uh, one, I'll tell you later, <laughs> one can laugh at this thing, but if you look, I mean, you know, I come from a philosophical tradition, look at it philosophically. What is happening here is that within the liberal uh, moral philosophical tradition, uh, Dworkin is one example, but I think there are much more interesting people than Dworkin within moral philosophy. Uh, in a sense, what is happening is that they find a sociological situation in which our societies do no longer produce organically a sense of value that you mentioned, 
And therefore, rights, the idea of a right, not just as a legal right, but generally as a power that belongs to individuals and creates duties in others, mainly the state, but now also in other human beings, in other citizens, duties to act in particular ways. That idea of right has become, is becoming the building block of our morality. And then problems start. Because as we know, both from our history and traditional philosophy, morality is based on all kinds of things, including rights, but the main, the main blocks, the main constituents of a living morality, of an active morality, are things like duty, sympathy, empathy, love, care, care for the other. All these other things that, of course, we know are being created within families, within neighborhoods, within communities, within churches, perhaps, within trade unions, within communities that, as it were, organically develop ways through which we deal with other people. Once now, sociologically, partly, to my mind, because of the way in which neoliberal capitalism, late capitalism has developed, those kinds of sources and resources of morality are being weakened, uh, then you have, as a, uh, as a result, the overemphasis on the idea of individual rights, which are supposed to come in and replace that sense of morality that's going away. To that extent, I would agree, for example, about the importance of certain religions. I'm totally atheistic myself. But the fact that you know, we need, that our societies need those other sources of creating value and virtue and the sense of duty, and of course, rights do not create duties. It was absolutely hilarious when the last, Mr. Jack Straw, published a white paper on a bill, a bill of rights, which he wanted to call a bill of rights and responsibilities. And when he listed the kind of responsibility he had in mind, he was saying things that people ought to serve in the juries, to help the police, to pay their taxes. And, and, and to be very nice, to be very nice towards public servants, the NHS staff, and so on. In other words, a combination of existing legal responsibilities, legal duties, plus a sense of civility. The sense of civility that has been undermined precisely because those sources of value, of morality, of being good to other people are something that automatically emerges, not imposed from outside and cannot be imposed from outside, is being lost. To that extent, agreeing fully with you, I would say that as we move towards a morality based on the conception of rights, not just legal rights, that wider sense of right, in which every I want X can eventually become, I have a right to X, and this is happening quite widely, that is a society in which I would call it a society of exit from morality, of any kind of morality we can recognize, and that, as a result, of course, creates the kinds of problems that David and his government as ministers will have then to deal with. Right. Thanks, Costas. I, we have another opportunity to bring you in, but if you'd like to come in quickly now before we go for another round, David and then Francesca, but quickly because we want to get well, another round. Just to say that Costas is right and to say that the, the area that needs exploration, it seems to me, think of the Democrats in the States running into problems, not being able to be elected because they were seen to be ad hoc to special interests, as they would call them, in, in the American context. Uh, we, we, we on the left tend to be good, or we become very good at the individual right, we become very good at how to run a state, but these ideas around family, these relational ideas, we have been less good at in this last period. This is where you in this room need to do more scholarly work to help us, because that 
that it's that that gives us the underpinning for human rights, and it's that that's been really lost, I think, in the in the in the national discourse. And uh, Francesca, I just wanted to quickly comment directly on the question: Is human rights a rhetorical flourish? Um, and my response would be that yes, I think primarily it is. I think what is in common with all of us, what we've all said in common, is that human rights comes primarily from people and from political struggle and from aspiration and ideals, in which case, quite logically, human rights is a rhetorical flourish. But the question is, what is it trying to say? And I think what it's trying to say is found in two words, not just rights, but human. I think what it's fundamentally asking the idea of human rights is what is, what is it that is necessary for human beings to be truly human? You know? um, Prima Levi's question, if I am a man, what, what is necessary? for human beings to reach their true humanity. And my personal uh, opinion is that um, nothing in the history of the 20th century, let alone the first 10 years of the 21st century that David described so graphically, uh, leads me to the conclusion that there's been an overemphasis on the individual, I'm afraid. I think there's been an overemphasis on the powerful and the privileged and even the complacent. But it's a lack of emphasis on the individual in my view, which leads to debates and policies based on these debates that say, well, there was only 11 people detained without trial indefinitely, never even told what the charge was against, and that's not many people when you think of the threat to security of all of us, or there was only 18 people that were put under house arrest in something called control orders by the last government, or the argument that the French government are using, which is there's only 3,000 women that wear the burqa in France, or you know, there's only a small number of Roma compared to migrants generally that are being expelled. So I think it is not a lack of emphasis on the individual that is the problem, but the, a lack of emphasis in protecting the I'm sorry. It is law, I have to say, it was in the end human rights law that challenged those policies based on the lack of respect for the individual, and it was politics, I'm afraid, that led to them. Right, uh, David Lamy is now seizing the moment. This is like literally. I just sentence. have to come back because Francesca has used a very clever device that yeah. I hope everyone in this yeah, room understands. rhetorical flag. There is a big difference between the minority, which are all the examples she gave, and the individual. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that pithiness. Uh, I, I, I've got. I've got hands. Uh, social and economic rights. The best ways of producing the, the what is a man answer. I think. I think we need to think seriously about violence and direct action because my premise has always been that democracy functions. When does a democracy cease to function to the point where actually it's not delivering any kind of community idea? Look at America. The Supreme Court has destroyed uh, the capacity of an equal playing field in the United States. The oh, November elections are being driven by money. When do we say there isn't a democratic system? And that's a very big question. Religion, I think, has been dealt with already. I'll take the lady who's right behind Bernard, right beside that, then this lady, and then Paul. If you're very, very quick, please, we have a few more hands up, including this gentleman. So can I ask you to say who you are and then move briskly on to your question? I'm Purna Sen. I used to teach and study here. I'm now head of human rights for the Commonwealth. Uh, and I'm quite interested in... Uh, Obviously, your manifesto, Connor, and various things I'd like to talk to you about. But the big question, I think, is um, your ten commandments, as they've been called, how, and the discussion around them tonight has been very much UK-focused and a little bit US. And I wonder how you see that, those uh, commandments, that manifesto, 
being relevant in a much wider international discussion and whether you think this will translate easy, easily into that. I think of the work I do with the 54 members of the Commonwealth and I think this would be an extremely difficult way of promoting uh, the discussions and the work that I'm interested in. I'm worried about your promoting of violence, uh, somebody who's worked on issues of domestic violence for 20 years. I find your promotion of that slightly problematic. Um, okay, I mean, that's fine. We're now spilling into the conversation we're about to have, Prana, but excellent. excellent. Uh, and I'll come back to you on the rest later. Uh, ab absolutely. <laughs> I, had a, I had a sense that they might be now if I hadn't said that, so forgive the rudeness. Uh, this lady down here, and then the gentleman behind her, I, I know you all, but I'm pretending I don't, as it were, for the purposes of... I'll try and be as quick as I can. Please. Um, my Re name is Christina, and I, I represent invisible women. I'm very interested in the fact that there's very few of them at the head of Britain, and in these events which I attend... Um, and other places, there are very few women speaking, so I'm so glad that you chose the two of us now. Um, there's two things I want to quickly comment on. Rights are for, for more than humans, and it's a point that Costas made, I think, about the imperialists and the colonials, except that I'm putting in women as, instead of colonials, because I feel they kind of get overlooked. And when you speak of labour rights, um, I was really interested in what uh, David said about one Afro-Caribbean at Oxford, I might choose another university, but I worked in Southwark for a long time and was very aware, um, particularly when Anne Owers was working with the um, Afro-Caribbeans who in 79 suddenly found that they were no longer Commonwealth citizens. So um, I think probably what I'm aiming at, and I'm going to just cut it short, education perhaps before labor if you have an education if you know what it is if you know how to use your democratic and not just the greeks but the women and the slaves as well thank you very much uh, and behind you um, and, yes um, if you're very quick we'll take you sir yeah yeah i'm paul burnell i'm one of connor's phd students here um, i just have a practical question connor have you actually written all these 20 essays <laughs> already uh, and, and to what extent can we uh, manipulate them before they come out right uh, the manipulation happens afterwards uh, you sir and then just behind you actually and then we go to the i'll speak and then we go sorry you no you're just too late the chat behind you actually yeah you carry on very short with who you are yes uh, anthony longwa from the uh, visiting fellow at the center of international studies here at lse um I think the politics of human rights is absolutely central uh, and the vision of what it means to be human. But I wonder if, uh, for you, Connor, and the other speakers, whether you think of human rights as something that is the minimum that is required for human beings to, to have a, any kind of basic existence as human beings or whether it's a, a maximal kind of vision of what seems to be human. A, a lot of these things, particularly when we start talking about uh, culture and, and uh, education and so on, uh, and the idea of human flourishing are pointing to a, a fully-fledged vision of what it constitutes to be human, which we're all going to disagree about all the time. But if we have a minimal understanding of what human rights are, uh, that might be a different uh, question and perhaps one where there's more likely to be agreement. Great. Anthony, and the gentleman, yes, with your hand now up and and then you had your hand up just before the other chap. I will take you as well, I will, because I know you so well. But this has to be fantastically short, almost over now. Sure, thank you. <laughs> well, my name is Richard Surinjogi, and I'm an Article 12 advisor for UNICEF UK. So essentially, I'm an advisor for children's rights. Um, something that I've been working on quite heavily, actually, over the past several months, is making children's rights meaningful. And so um, UNICEF UK's large ever initiative which is child-friendly communities and will be rolled out in March nationally. You'll see lots of advertising and stuff. And I want to know how exactly do we here make sure that these human rights, your rights manifesto, how do you make them relevant? As you, Professor Gertie, I heard you touch upon 
um, the notion that we haven't actually fought for human rights. And so that many people don't actually feel that they're relevant. And also, David Lammy, you spoke of the fact that you want your constituents to feel that it belongs to them. Uh, so essentially, my one big thing is, how do you make them relevant to the rest of the country? Thank right, you. Thank you very much. And this is the very last thing from the, fr from the floor. Uh, then thank we, you. We do um, a short wrap up. My name is Ian Anderson, Campaign to Make Wars History. And I just wanted to ask whether you think that the um, contingent nature of guarantees for equality within the Human Rights Act is part of the problem. Let's say that say Article 14 is highly parasitic. You have to engage other articles before you can even talk about equality. Um, and it seems a great shame, therefore, that the government didn't sign up for Protocol 12, um, which is a freestanding guarantee of equality within the ECHR system. And finally, uh, do you, what do you think about the abrogation of legal aid? Because without legal aid, how can anybody bring a case? Yeah, thank you very much. I, I'm going to just briskly say, perhaps one of us would pick up those points about equality, I agree with you, and legal aid, it, it, courts and, you know, not great at delivering access to legal services. Most of the other ones, actually, are evidence of what I need from this project. In other words, I need to internationalise, it's a weakness. I need to be more sensitive to the feminine because I was looking at it thinking to myself where are these dimensions. Uh, the answer actually will be that they will flow from interactions, that's the theory, and the book will genuinely grow. Bernal, the outrageous attempt to manipulate the original essays, is totally and utterly rejected. He can take his place in the queue with everybody else commenting on them, not using his special access to me to try and achieve his own co-authored original works. So I've, I've seen him off. Uh, Anthony, uh, in today's climate, the minimum is going to be pretty good for quite a lot of people. And I hope that we move to a point where the maximum is actually something we can put on the political agenda. But for now, working for a minimalist approach to human rights will give people things millions of people don't have, uh, which is a sad reflection on where we are in a world of such wealth. Uh, I'll come back and conclude the event. I'm going to give all three of you uh, a, a, an opportunity to wrap up and we will be out of here by 8 o'clock. And I think we'll start with Francesca, move to David, and then end with Costas. Just a very quick response to the minimalist maximalist point. I think you got to the heart of the paradox of human rights. Um, you know, it, it, I think one of the greatest criticisms you can make of it is that it is actually a vision of minimalism, of what is necessary for the humans to flourish. And you get, therefore, the little criticisms of it that Costas and David made, that it doesn't resolve the, the inequalities and the exploitation that we face in our society. On the other hand, when it tries to go further and become more maximalist, you get the criticism that Costas and David made, that there's rights inflation and it goes too far. So the way I understand human rights is this. It is ultimately about a vision for the better society is this therefore ultimately about politics but it's not an ideology it's a companion to other ideologies i think its best marriage is with social democracy but it's not a substitute for social democracy it's a corrector against some of the more worrying tendencies of social democracy by making sure human dignity is at its heart thank you uh, david I thought that was very well put. Um, <laughs> I could see you were listening. I, I thought that was very, very well put. Uh, I mean, I think just to, just to say uh, how do we make it more relevant, um, it is to really, you know, the, the, human, the human part of the dilemma is difficult because uh, is David Cameron human? Um, 
Uh, yes, he is. But, 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 but I'm afraid, politically, I think he has launched into doing some pretty inhuman things. And so, I don't know how the, the you know, I don't know where that takes us, basically, when you get down to the nitty-gritty. So my just fundamental message is that human rights cannot be this lofty thing that is up here. It cannot be this atomized individual thing that's down here. It has to be relational. It has to be located in family, in, so in neighborhood, in social unit. I do think that Connor is right when he says that faith is certainly not an enemy. It is a companion on this journey because that is where much of the world, when you certainly get to an international perspective, much of the world is located. And finally, before I wrap up, Costas. Indeed, historically, the idea of human rights and of the individual subject of rights is a secularization of the idea of the equality of the soul, or the Christian idea, with certain Jewish elements, but mainly Christian idea, and this is still absolutely central in the human rights tradition. The idea of the sacredness of life, the idea of an equality of people and so on, albeit a formal equality, is nothing more than the secularization of the universalism of the Christian religion. So we have a minimum, uh, a minimum package, a minimum content of human rights, and this is precisely what makes it an ideology, and here I disagree with Francisca. It makes an ideology because that minimum package, which is civil and political rights associated with the individual, with both a methodological individualism but also an ontological individualism, is so minimal, because social economic rights don't get into it, it is so minimal that get easily confused and complemented by basically the ideology of liberal capitalism that we have today. So then you have those rights for the two-thirds of our society, the, the seduced part of our society, who want more rights, and they get more rights all the time. But then the third, which is now increasing as a result of the cuts all over Europe, not just here, that third is then dealt with as a security problem. It is about building walls to keep them out, to keep them in Africa, or building walls to keep them in, in prisons, or finding all kinds of ways to turn them away from the parts of the seduced, uh, uh, seduced areas of our society, which of course don't want to know about it. To that extent, even today, the point that I made more generally and theoretically, that humanity is both a principle of universalization of Christian provenance, but also a strategy of excluding. It is applying today as much as it applied in the 15th and the 16th century. Thank you very much. I've learned from this hour and a half that if we can transfer some of the energy in this room into uh, the virtual sphere, we will achieve something. We will actually have an inclusive perspective on rights, which will be my job to maintain as coherent and your job to ensure that it's ethically full. And that's a partnership. Uh, you will have seen Frank here, and as a result of his work, this will be on the web tomorrow. I say looking rather hopefully at Frank with all of it. <laughs> and you'll be able to see it in LSE, but also on the website that you will have seen earlier, which is www.therightsfuture.com. And 
That website would not exist without a number of people. LSE has been fantastic in its support for it. And also I uh, have a web designer, Caroline Mockett, who has been tremendous. And the Space for Thought Festival in February, which this is moving towards, which is an LSE festival, a weekend festival, which I hope you'll all come to, at which we will summarise and reflect on what we have achieved here, is being organised very capably by Louise, who is at the back there. And uh, I want to thank her very much for her support for this as well, for driving it forward. So this has been a team effort in its formulation and realisation, as well as in its work tonight. And I, I would like to thank our three colleagues for the excellent work they did. I'll give you a chance to give them a proper round of applause in a moment. First, no, no, stop. <laughs> First, the bad news, I have run out of money. Uh, I do not run a centre. I cannot take you all for a drink. It's a complete disaster. But uh, we will be having a drink. Professor Dismas came in and said, when I offered him a cup of tea, do you have anything stronger? He said that at six o'clock, so goodness knows what he's going to say at a quarter past eight. I suspect he'll be having a drink. Uh, we will be in the George pub in a short while, some of us, I hope some of us can stay, and uh, without necessarily assuming you're going to get a free drink from me, we'd love to see you, and uh, I'd like to allow yourself, when you are applauding these wonderful people, to also applaud yourselves. The strength and range and quality of your interventions has been what has made it a successful evening. So thank you very much as well.